Penicillin is one of the greatest discoveries in the history of modern medicine, and this product of accident has changed the fate of countless lives. However, antibiotic resistance has become one of the biggest public health challenges of our time. And each year in the U.S., more than 2.8 million people will contract an antibiotic-resistant infection. This rapid host pathogen coevolution has really surpassed our scientific abilities, resulting in superbugs that can evade even our strongest antibiotics. Thus, currently, there is a high demand in accelerating antibiotic discoveries to combat emerging bacteria that can evade our existing drugs. Hi, I'm Shen. And this is Mehdi, and we are back with another Rehashing Science episode. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are going remote and recording all our episodes via Skype or Zoom during this period of time. For today's episode, we have the honor of speaking to Dr. James Collins, who is a faculty member in the Department of Biological Engineering and Institute for Medical Engineering and Science. He's also affiliated with the Broad Institute and the Wyss Institute at Harvard University. He has received numerous awards and honors, including the MacArthur Genius Award and NIH Director's Pioneers Award. He's also an elected member of all the three prestigious national academies, including the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine. Dr. Collins is one of the pioneers in the field of synthetic biology. We are going to dive deeply into a recent paper from Dr. James Collins' group, in which they have discovered a powerful antibiotic molecule by harnessing the power of artificial intelligence to pick potential candidates from several chemical libraries with more than 100 million molecules. Thank you, Dr. Collins, for joining us today. We would like to start off by asking you a little bit about yourself. So I'm a bioengineering professor at MIT, as well as at the Beast Institute at Harvard and the Broad Institute here in the Boston area. And my background originally in medical engineering was to use principles from biological physics and nonlinear dynamics to study whole body dynamics, to study how people walk, how people run, how people maintain balance. And that was really the prime focus of my lab during the 1990s. But in the late 1990s, at the encouragement of two key colleagues at Boston University, Charles Alissi, who was our Dean of Engineering, and Charles Cantor, who was the chair of our Department of Biomedical Engineering, they strongly encouraged me to see if I could introduce similar engineering principles at the level of a living cell, so in molecular biology. And inspired by them and teaming up with Tim Gardner, a talented PhD student in my lab, we began to think about how you could apply engineering principles at the genome level to begin to model, design, and build synthetic gene networks. And our work, along with several other labs around the country and around the world, helped to launch what became the field of synthetic biology. The paper from Cell that you recently published, it's quite timely in that right now we're worried about COVID, but before we were also worried about superbugs. So tell us about how you use AI to discover new antibiotics to you know, combat this particular challenge and why we need to discover these new antibiotics in the first place. 
Yeah, so my lab's been working on antibiotics for over a decade now, using engineering principles to better understand how antibiotics act and resistance arises, really with the goal of expanding our antibiotic arsenal. We took on this challenge because one of the existential crises facing humankind is antibiotic resistance. So the number of bacterial pathogens out there that are resistant to antibiotics are growing due to the overuse of antibiotics, whilst the number of new antibiotics being discovered, developed, and approved is dramatically dropping, in part because the market's broken. Just in this last year, we teamed up with Regina Barzilay, one of my faculty colleagues at MIT and one of the world leaders in applying AI to healthcare, and decided to see if we could harness AI to expand our antibiotic arsenal. And what we did was relatively straightforward. So we initially put together a training library of 2,500 molecules, 1,700 FDA-approved drugs, plus 800 natural compounds. We applied these to E. coli and looked to see which of the compounds exhibited antibacterial activity in the form of growth inhibition. We took those data coupled with information on the structure of each molecule and trained a deep neural net, so a deep learning model in a computer to associate or learn molecular features that were related to antibacterial activity. We then took that model and our initial effort was to apply it to the broad repurposing library, which consists of 6,100 drugs that were, have been approved as drugs or were in development as drugs. And we challenged the model to identify molecules that are predicted to be antibacterial in nature, but don't look like existing antibiotics. And one molecule in that library fit those criteria, and that was a molecule we've called Halicin, which turned out to be a remarkably potent antibiotic. So if you could a little bit walk us through what are the old antibiotic discovery platforms and what are the advantages of these new AI platforms? So what I think is maybe not as fully appreciated by the listeners is that it's really only relatively recently that we've had antibiotics. So it's a little over 90 years ago that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. And it took over a decade before we figured out how to manufacture penicillin at a scale that it could be provided as a drug. What's I think also further lost on many listeners is that many of the antibiotics that we have in use today were discovered in the 40s, 50s, and 60s before the modern molecular biology revolution, before the genomic revolution, before the biotech revolution, before the AI revolution. And the traditional means to discover antibiotics usually consists of screening methods that are empirical. So one will bring together a library of 10,000 molecules, 100,000 molecules, maybe a million molecules, and you'll screen them one by one experimentally in a lab against a pathogen of interest to see if, if it exhibits antibacterial activity. This process is slow and tedious, can take many weeks, if not months. The AI approach is radically different in that subsequent to the training procedure, which can take only a matter of days, given you can use a relatively small library of molecules to train your model, you can then apply that model in very rapid fashion against relatively large libraries, in fact, including enormous libraries. So in the case of the drug repurposing library, 6100, it was negligible the amount of time it took us to apply our model, literally in a matter of minutes, to search through those molecules. And to put in perspective, on the heels of the repurposing library, we then took the same model, slightly expanded, and applied it to the zinc database, which includes 1.5 billion molecules. And there we didn't 
look at the entire 1.5 billion, but about 10% of the data set. And in that case, we actually were able to screen, in this case, 107 million molecules in just three or four days. And that would have been pragmatically impossible, both from just an actual carrying out the task by say, humans or robots, let alone the cost of pulling together that many molecules. And it really points to both time savings, cost savings, but also opening up the ability to search enormous chemical spaces for new antibiotics. How you train the algorithm that you said it's going to be done within, like it has been done within one to two days. What are the criteria for the training of the algorithm? And is it biased? You know, it's any algorithm will only be as good as the training data you put in. And and it's interesting. There's been a lot of pieces in the press about biases that exist in AI models and AI platforms. And, And the great, great, great majority of the biases can be tracked to the training data. It's not a bias that's been put in by the programmer. Typically, it's really the training data. In this case, we started out with a very small training library, as I said, of only 2,500 molecules. One would have thought, as we thought, that that would be insufficient to create a model that had any sort of predictive value. And this intuition, this thought, was largely driven by the generally accepted notion that these deep learning networks are data hungry. They need enormous data sets. And that comes from prior work largely done on the Internet for searching for images and looking at uh, other signals of interest. We were nonetheless heartened to see that the 2,500 molecules, which is what we had handy, that we could afford. This was a project that we basically bootlegged. It was uh, one that we put on the backs of existing efforts. We were nonetheless able to create a model that had very good predictive capability. And what we did, uh, for those interested at the level, is that we actually coarse-brained the training data. So we applied the model, model uh, training data, in this case, to E. coli, looking to see which of the molecules inhibited E. coli. We could get an analog signal in the sense that you could we could characterize how well each molecule inhibited E. coli. But instead of using that wide range of inhibition variables, a variable to train the model, we instead just set a threshold and said, okay, if the molecule inhibits better than this threshold, we'll say it's inhibitory. If the molecule does not inhibit to the level of the threshold, we say it's not inhibitory. So basically zero one. And in this case, we're able to better take account of the classification training capability of the model to figure out which molecular features is associated with antibacterial activity. The heart of the model and the innovation, the brilliance of the model gets traced back to Regina Barzilay, Tommy Jackala, another colleague at MIT and their team. And that it's a platform called ChemProp that had been used for looking at molecular features in other contexts. And I think it's really at the state of the art for capturing molecular features and associating with different phenotypic inputs in our case, just simply zero one inhibitory, not inhibitory. One of the wonderful things I really enjoyed about this paper is that not only did you, your team, uh, used AI to identify this halicine, but you also showed a proof of concept experiment of how it works in the animal model. And so can you tell us about how that was observed in terms of how the title here is halicine dissipates the delta pH component, the proton motive force. So can you tell us how that was discovered and what is the advantage of this platform to finding the mechanism behind certain antibiotics and future antibiotics? Let me speak a a bit about halicin and then I'll discuss the mechanism and how we got there. So first, as I mentioned earlier, halicin turns out to be a broad, potent antibacterial. Uh, We found that it was 
rapidly bactericidal, so killed E. coli readily. It actually also worked very effectively against tolerant E. coli uh, and was bactericidal, which is rare for existing antibiotics. We found that halicin was also very effective against uh, 35 of 36 panels of multidrug resistant, extensively drug resistant and pan resistant pathogens that we obtained from the CDC. Right. As you alluded, we also ran two different animal models. We showed that halicin was effective against Clostridium difficile in a mouse model, as well against Acinobacter baumani in a skin wound model in mice. The latter, uh, Acinobacter baumani, is actually also known as the Iraqi bug. It's a bug that bedevils U.S. and U.K. soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's on the list of the WHO uh, as one of the deadly pathogens for which we desperately knew, need new antibiotics. As we also highlight in the paper, we found that Hallison was also rapidly bactericidal against TB and have since the publication shown that it will also kill TB inside macrophages without damaging the macrophages. Now, we also took the time to get after the mechanism of Hallison, and I should clarify that our work on the mechanism was not directly related to the AI platform. Mm -hmm. We did not use this AI platform to get after mechanism. The platform did not speak to mechanism. Mm -hmm. John Stokes, our lead postdoc and lead author, and really the hands behind the efforts that I get to describe to you today, mm -hmm. ran a series of additional studies where he looked at gene expression work. He followed up with phenotypic work to show that Hallison works by an unconventional mechanism, specifically dissipating the pH of proton motor force across the membrane. And so it's likely that Hallison does not go after a specific molecular target, but instead interacts in this manner against the membrane. And the, the benefit of that as a molecule is that we also found that Hallison has a remarkably low resistance spectrum. So when we tested Hallison in the lab alongside Cipro to see if E. coli will develop resistance against either of the antibiotic, after a few days, we saw resistance against Cipro. After 30 days, we saw the resistance grew to about 200-fold against Cipro. Mm -hmm. In case of Hallison, after a few days, we did not see any resistance. Mm -hmm. And even after 30 days, we did not see any resistance. So it's really quite hopeful that this molecule and potentially analogs might be both quite effective at treating infections and might also have a low resistance spectrum so that it could be in use for a decently long time. And why you called it Hallison? We call them Hallison in homage to the AI computer from 2001 Space Odyssey called HAL. In that case, it was a killing computer, though it killed humans. In this case, we have a killing molecule that's not going after humans. I found Hallison to have low toxicity, both in earlier work that others had done, as well as predicted, but in fact was quite good at killing pathogens. So uh, right now we are going through a crazy times of the outbreak of COVID-19. I would like to ask how these platforms can be used to identify potential drug vaccine against unknown strains of bacteria or viruses, including the COVID-19. Yeah, so we are engaged on this in multiple projects with Regina Barzilay, Tommy Giacola, Everett by John Stokes. And first, I want to note that we are actually immediately applying the platform to identify antibiotics that could be effective against the bacterial lung infections that are really troubling the COVID-19 patients. So those that are in intensive care are often in intensive care because they have a lung infection, a bacterial lung infection. And so we're working quite aggressively and quite hard 
to get after the discovery of novel therapeutics to treat such infections. We also have launched efforts to apply the platform to the discovery of novel antivirals, specifically those that could be effective against COVID-19. The platform, this deep learning or AI platform, is clinical indication agnostic. There's nothing specific about the AI features of the platform to antibiotic discovery. The training data, the assay used to generate the training data, and the assays used to test the compounds, both in vitro and in animals, were specific to antibiotics. But the platform can be applied to other training sets that could be for antivirals, as well as test the predictions against assay specific to antivirals. And we now are already applying the platform to training data that we've obtained for related viruses. There are no training data that we have access yet to COVID-19, but we are aggressively exploring uh, collaborations both here in the Boston area and broadly around the world to find such data. And we are hopeful that even with a relatively small training set of the order that we saw and used in our antibiotics study, that we could potentially provide insights into uh, molecules that could be used for this pandemic. I'll take this as a point to emphasize that in our antibiotics paper that we published in Cell, we use the platform as a discovery tool, specifically as a screening tool against large libraries. Mm -hmm. We are also now extending the platform to use it as a design tool. Mm -hmm. And that is to use the learned model, what it's learned about molecular features, to design de novo molecules that can address what the molecule, what the model was trained to do. In this initial case, it was to identify effective antibiotics. We're now using it to design molecules de novo that may not exist in an existing library. And so along those lines, we also think that once we have a suitably trained model for COVID-19 or related viruses, that we should also be able to use the model to design de novo molecules that may not exist in existing libraries. And how long right now would this process take going from designing or discovering de novo molecules to the clinic? You know, the pre-discovery or discovery phase, I think, can be relatively short, you know, with appropriate resources. And by that, I mean largely talent that can be put to work and or appropriate data sets. Those are our two limiting factors at times. You could get through an early discovery effort in a matter of weeks if you are aggressive. Mm -hmm. Getting then to the clinic or proceeding to the clinic is where things can slow down a bit and that you have to obviously do your different phases for clinical trials, getting after safety and efficacy. Having said that, separate even from the current pandemic, but in the context of antibiotics, I actually think the additional benefit of our platform, in addition to dramatically reducing the time and cost of the discovery phase and dramatically expanding the expanse that can be covered in that discovery phase, I think this platform with its ability to design and to discover molecules with high specificity and thus leading us to narrow spectrum antibiotics is a current goal. We think we can also dramatically reduce the time and cost of clinical trials by designing trials going after orphan conditions with unmet medical needs. Do you foresee any obstacles in moving this platform forward? You know, the obstacles are always multifold, uh, and it's the type that I think many are facing in, in this interface of AI and medicine and AI and biotech. It's you have the cultural divides. Can you find the right talent that is deep enough in the deep learning space to advance those efforts, but open enough to moving it in appropriate clinical indication. Similarly, on the other side, can you find somebody deep enough, rich enough in a particular area of life sciences, but nonetheless is open enough to interact with the AI experts? So to find folks who are bilingual, but also deep in expertise 
uh, in their respective domains. Second is always a matter of finding the right data sets. I think the more relevant data sets that have been collected with these models in mind will dramatically expand the ability of these platforms to transform drug discovery. Uh, so in this case, it's each really, I think the challenges around talent and getting the right data. I would like to sum up and please correct me if I'm wrong. So we have two pieces that are really critical for moving this uh, forward. One is to find the right talent. And the second one, if we have enough knowledge and data to train the algorithm, we can find any potential drug or vaccine against unknown strains of bacteria, viruses. Am I right? So uh, I'm not sure on the applicability of the platform to vaccines. I do think that we've demonstrated the applicability of the platform to therapeutics. I'm not sure I'd, I'd say any, we could find any molecule, but I think we can find a number of effective molecules and potentially ones that would not have been discovered designed otherwise. Being a pioneer of synthetic biology, I wanted to ask about what is your vision for the future of this field and potentially new subfields that emerge from kind of the current research that's been going on? You know, I think synthetic biology, which is still a relatively young field, it's only two decades old, is poised to be a dominant field for this century. I think the ability to engineer living cells, endowing them with novel functions to address a broad range of applications, be they in healthcare, which is my focus, uh, or for food, for water, for energy, for the environment, I think just opens up possibilities. I think synthetic biology will be one of the defining technologies for this century. Going forward, I see three areas that I think will emerge in the next decade as key areas of excitement. One is using synthetic biology as a tool, as a platform to expand our ability to better understand living cells. But I think a real power of the field will be in developing tools that enable life scientists, molecular cell biologists to better understand how bacteria function, how yeast function, how human cells function, how human tissues function, how the human body functions. Second, I see a very big effort in cell-free synthetic biology. So the idea that you can take the machinery of a living cell out of a living cell and have it function in a petri dish or test tube or have it function in a cell-free freeze-dried manner on paper, on cloth, on plastic. I think this space will enable us to more effectively move biology as an engineering discipline. And then third, I see emerging of some of the things I shared around antibiotics in synthetic biology, and that is the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning to do two key things. One is to enable us to infer design principles for nature. Second is to use deep learning and various other aspects of AI for biodiversity mining. 20 years into synthetic biology, we still primarily use just a few dozen parts in, a, in an amazing reusable fashion. And that has significantly limited our ability to design components to introduce into living cells. Nature nonetheless has millions, billions of different components and parts that have evolved for certain functions over millions and millions of years. And I think broad AI platforms will expand our ability to find and characterize those parts and harness them for synthetic biology for decades to come. That's fantastic. We really look forward to all those innovations. We're going to get a little more personal. Can you tell us more about what motivates you and your science? You know, I think we're largely motivated to make discoveries, make advances that can have an impact. 
we're motivated, I'm motivated to make advances that can really have an impact on people's lives. That is to introduce platforms, devices, technologies that could enable better and faster diagnosis of disease, that could enable better and more effective treatment of disease, that could enable the prevention of disease. That's what really gets me out of bed in the morning. What do you do for fun outside of work? I hang with family. I hang with friends. So my wife's a primary care physician at Mass General. Uh-huh. I have uh, two kids. My daughter Katie's a junior at MIT and my son Danny's a senior in high school. So we do a lot of activities with our kids, uh-huh. uh, workout and sports. Uh, we love to hike, my son and myself. We love to hang with friends and talk about what's happening. Uh, he will regularly work out still and, and do as much reading as I can. Jim, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I can't wait for the upcoming discoveries from your research group. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today for this episode. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on your show, and I enjoyed speaking with you as well. Our show is available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please subscribe and refer our podcast to your friends. We would love to hear your comments and feedback for our show, so don't hesitate to reach out to us via our website. This episode was the result of incredible teamwork during this hectic time by our wonderful team members, including our writers, Madura Lolikar, Dr. Shuang Zeng, Bria Taylor, and our marketing director, Dr. Carla Diavanzo, our editors, Tavi Pollard and Sophia Nastri, our assistant, Rebecca Solison, and of course, our creative director, Emma Brand.